I process sound, my thoughts, my feelings visually. And I should allow myself to speak in a native language, really. So learning that kind of gave me the personal mental freedom I needed to kind of just step more into being an artist. How do you make art for the temple? How do you make art for the temple in the middle of a city that is already defined by magic and by beauty? My name is Gibran Rivera. I'm a facilitator, and this is my podcast. Here, I'm inviting you into a conversation with remarkable leaders who are defining their lives through the evolution of consciousness and culture. With this episode, I am inviting you to meet Jaywo. Jaywo is a Bay Area-based artist who I have had the privilege to work with for many years. But last year, I got to see Jaywo at Burning Man, and I got to see her art as the centerpiece of this incredible temple that is the last thing to burn at the end of this epic ritual. Jaywo, it's awesome uh, to have you on the podcast. Thank you for saying yes. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. I'm really excited to talk with you. I've been really looking forward to this. And I will definitely make space for our listeners to hear more about you. But lately, I've been starting these conversations right away asking people about a belief that they have once held um, that has shaped them. I believe that they have held to be true that no longer holds. Um, and I can think of so many for myself in my own life. I have been um, I have been a very Catholic, for example, mm-hmm. or I have been a Puerto Rican nationalist. I have um, held on to left ideology with a lot of rigidity. Uh-huh. I have heard, uh, I have, uh, I have had all sorts of ideas about parenting before I was a parent. And <laughs> all it takes is being a parent for your ideas of parenting to be challenged. So, right. I like to start here because I feel like we live in a time where people seem to be getting more and more rigid about their beliefs. Um, And it's so important to remember that we grow and evolve by changing our minds. And uh, I'd love to ask this question of of the people I interview so that our listeners can get a sense of of how awesome people change their minds. So I'm just curious uh, what's there for you. Yeah, this is a great question. Um, kind of thinking back to a lot of different points in my life, there was a definitely a pretty large a number of years. Um, I used to think like emotions and feelings were kind of a weakness. They were a flaw of humans. That you know, me being somebody that, in terms of you know, education. Being in, you know, growing up here in the U.S., um, definitely in a very kind of science engineering family and culture as well. And from personal experiences where I was definitely hurt by others when I gave them my feelings and emotions and when I opened up to them. Um, you know, I used to think that's that's the weakness. That's where your feelings and emotions, they're irrational they don't make sense. They can impede, you know, this idea of success. Um, I'd say that was a good chunk of my 20s, actually, early early mid-20s. Um, and that's a pretty different view than what I have now. I sort of can recognize that that might have been a little bit of a defense mechanism. Um, and it allowed me to kind of get over maybe some uh, kind of personal emotional trauma by closing those parts of me off. Um, But I'm happy now that I've kind of been able to reflect and change from that. And I can see that, you know, logic and science and those things are very beneficial and useful, but then applying them through, you know, our human emotions and feeling and empathy with each other, like that's where 
you know, they can really kind of flourish and, mm. and shine. And, and how did you come to this realization, j That's been a pretty long process, I guess. There was definitely um, kind of getting through, you know, a number of periods where I might have self-destructive behavior. I might have been, you know, in relationships that didn't work out. So I had multiple times been reinforced that, you know, these feelings and emotions were negative. But then as I got older, um, those feelings, it's not like they weren't there. They were just basically coming out as anger when they would eventually come out because it's not like I'm not feeling them. I'm just kind of suppressing them and stuffing them down inside. And then, you know, probably towards, I'd say my late, 20s and early 30s, it really just started manifesting more as anger. Um, there, there was then also a good period of time where I, you know, I would kind of joke, but it wasn't really a joke that I would operate from this place of anger. And it was useful because it got me passionate and moving and doing work. But that ended up turning me into a person that I didn't actually like, mm-hmm. that I could see these feelings and emotions when they went unprocessed, they were coming out kind of perverted as this anger that would then change my behavior into exactly what I didn't like in the first place. Somebody that would be disrespectful and harmful and rude to others. And then I was just, you know, perpetuating these negative, harmful energies. Wow. Um, and so that's been a process. I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm all good now, but it's, it's been a learning process that I've been going through um, for sure. That really resonates with me, Jay. And I, and I want to tell you, I feel like one of the biggest transformations in my life was very similar. I was uh, an activist, an organizer. And, you know, I referred to earlier to this period of like an ideological rigidity and all of my stance towards justice was really, really oppositional, right? Mm-hmm. And so you start to live in a space where like anger is being used as the fuel and you justify it because there's injustice, but you don't understand how much it's limiting you, right? It's like the, how, how it's like you're taking that poison. Mm-hmm. And I remember like, you know, a set of events that where my life pretty much came tumbling down because this anger manifested in in such ugly ways. And, and, and I understood at that point that it had everything to do, not just with my personality, not just with my background, but with how I was choosing to live, how I was choosing to orient my perspective um, towards justice and to a better world. So um, I, I, just, I just really relate. To, to the reflection that you've just shared. Um, and I, I like to start this podcast with the question of belief, but I think it'll be helpful if people have an idea about you and who you are and what you do. Um, when I think of you, I think of you principally as an artist and as a person that is uh, really concerned with how we structure our economy and our society and our culture, really interested in doing this differently. Um, those are some of the ways in which I I know you. And I'm just wondering how you're speaking about yourself and about, and about what you're doing these days. Yeah, um, you definitely hit, hit that pretty accurately. Um, yeah, I'm a visual artist, I guess a general kind of creative person. <laughs> Um, and here in Oakland, California. Um, and yeah, a lot of my concerns, I am deeply concerned with kind of just the systems that have been building this world, um, these interpersonal systems, as well, well as these like kind of institutional structures. Um, and especially with the economy, um, considering that currently the way that the world works is so money focused, right? Everything kind of come back, comes back to the money and whether or not things should be done relates back to 
whose money will be impacted, who will make money. And the systems of how we've, you know, monetized humans and just humanity. And that goes like literally humans are monetized as as work and labor, but then also the human elements of what we reward and what we don't reward, um, kind of similar to, you know, these emotive parts of us are not financially rewarded in the world and they're almost demonized, right? That they're not beneficial to success and kind of industrial progress. But the lack of them is highly rewarded. And that has related, that has developed into, yeah, the literal death of humans and life on the planet and the planet, you know. Um, so it's almost, it's, it's kind of this really perverted way that the systems have ended up rewarding that which harms us um, versus that which nourishes life. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel um, just in terms of the art for me, you know, stepping into that more is that, you know, I don't necessarily feel I've found any more of an effective way for myself to express my thoughts about these sorts of systems um, or to impact you know, express myself and communicate with others about kind of all of this and just my thoughts and feelings and processing of what's going on. Um, for me, it's most effective through visual art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I'm glad you, you brought up to that because, you know, we've known each other for, for a couple of years. I've always felt a, a good, beautiful connection with you. And I've been really quite impressed by 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 your art and the work that you see that I've seen that you do, and what finally tipped me over into saying, "Oh my God, like I I gotta bring you on the podcast. I need people to to hear about you and what you're doing and how you're thinking about it." Mm-hmm. Is this uh, this magnificent uh, piece that you did for of all places? Um, the temple at Burning Man. So we were both at Burning Man this year. Mm-hmm. The temple is, uh, just for the listeners that don't know, is, you know, maybe aside from the man or along with the man, uh, the most important art, art structure in, in, in that miraculous place. It's certainly the heart of the city, uh, the heart uh, of, this, of this gorgeous uh an almost impossible ritual, uh, and to have uh, your art, to actually know, to personally know, and be friends with the artist that had a that had this 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 piece up there. Just uh, it was such an honor, and such a, and, it, and it added so much to my experience. You know, I would go into the temple and hold that awareness and hold the spiritual energy of that experience in relationship to you and what you were capturing there, I just really wanted um, my listeners to know about it. And I wanted to hear you talk about it. And and I'm hoping you can tell me all sorts of things. Maybe maybe a first couple of words about what, what the piece is, and then we can we can talk about how, how you ended up getting it up there. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, the piece that I did for the temple there... Um, Temple was designed by my friend Jordy, um, and he brought me in as a collaborating artist. And you know, particularly with the temple, that was really special to me is that it is I consider the heart of the city, um, and it's also one of the places in the city that is kind of dedicated to a little bit more um, deep, serious. Um, a full range of human emotions. So there's the grief and the loss. Um, those feelings that people bring in there, as well as a lot of joy and there's weddings and there's unions and there's a lot of love. So it is this full spectrum of human emotions that can go, that this place is dedicated for, um, which is unlike other projects. Um, 
you know, and there's a certain amount of respect given in that place to the people, to, to what those people, what people are bringing into that space. Um, and so for that, I wanted to bring in a piece of art that could kind of touch on the, the, you know, universality of human experience, um, and do that in a way that was not, you know, forcing upon folks, viewers, um, imagery that could be misinterpreted or have pre-established meaning. So things that were more represent, I did not want to put things that were more representational, like if they were bodies or words, um, because depending on who's there, I mean, there's such a range of people that are going to be entering the space and everybody has these different associations. So I wanted to bring it down to a pretty fundamental um, fundamental building blocks of a piece. So the piece was called The Premise and it was using really just color, texture, um, geometric form, um, shape. And... You know, I brought in a, kind of these representations of these base elements of life and existence. So there were um, the four seasons, which was <clears throat> winter, spring, autumn, su- summer. And then there were um, the elements, which is, you know, water, air, fire, earth. And those were represented through kind of color color schemes and textural patterns. And then um, the 24 human chromosomes that exist um, kind of in the... That is wild. Yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. So those four, those those three different kind of elements that would bring in um, what material existence, you know, biological existence and... Um, you know, the passage of time and season, those were represented in kind of four different panels that interlocked with each other, um, kind of through this abstracted sort of heart entity, um, bringing together these different aspects of existence, but unifying them through, you know, a representation of kind of love and union, um, where the difference is necessary and it creates the beauty that we have, but um, the difference isn't something that needs to really separate us, that we could all still, all the range of experience and beings can still come together because we are, as I see it, we are all attached, connected. Uh, And it is through these unions that we come together. That is that is absolutely beautiful and and poetic, really. And you know, it, it actually makes me think. I've been act, uh, contemplating through some learning I've been doing. I've been contemplating the idea of the mythopoetic, the idea that somehow for us to begin to contend with the real existential challenges that we're facing as a species. Mm-hmm we got to kind of dive all the way down beyond even reason mm-hmm. into this mythopoetic space, right? Where we are dealing with with meaning and archetype and language that is not necessarily uh, direct, right? That is kind of aesthetic, that comes and sneaks up on you by evoking parts of you that is kind of in a liminal space between the re- reason and, and lack of reason and that's part of of what I what what you're evoking in me as you as you describe this and, and and so then it makes me really curious like for for an artist uh, of this caliber to be working at, at this scale right I mean it, it's it's uh it's the equivalent of like making the the holy of holies in a cathedral you know it's a big deal here and I, I want to kind of really really communicate that to our listeners. So I'm just really curious as to what is the, how does that come? How does the, how does the creative vision even come to you? Do you get the commit, you get the commission and then suddenly this is downloaded. Like how, 
how do you even come up with this? What are you attuning to? Yeah. Um, well, the process, you know, it took kind of a full nine months from when I was first, you know, contacted about it was at the end of December 18. You know, so it went up the end of August. So it really was nine months. So I consider it's probably the you know closest thing I'll do have to having a baby. And it was definitely the largest thing I've ever done to date. Um, it was, I mean, I won't lie. I was totally scared <laughs> out of my mind. There's a lot of pressure. Um, but I think definitely thinking about how different people, the space is going to be used. I wanted something that could be, you know, applicable and received by everyone. Um, I didn't want to like pick out, you know, this would be for this viewer or someone going here with a certain type of emotion or purpose. Like I wanted it to be something that could be applicable for all range of experience and beings that entered the space. And so that was bringing it back to just these fundamental elements of life and existence. Um, and it definitely started, I knew I wanted to do something with the earth elements the and also with the, the seasons actually came a little bit later. Um, but I wanted a connection between kind of the physical elements. I knew I wanted to bring in biology, human DNA, um, genetic sequences, some sort of representation of like, what is the same between all of us, between all life on the planet? Um, even people that are not there that won't see it, you know, we still share all of these fundamental things. Um, and touching on that, you know, sort of letting those, like how would I represent them in ways that wouldn't be, you know, pre-associated you know, something that could be abstract. Um, and, you know, also just even in the form of it, I took the the temple itself. Um, fortunately, Jordy was able to give me kind of a blueprint drawing of the temple at the, at the very beginning. Um, so the pieces themselves were in the same shape as the overhead view of the temple. Um, so then it could be really something that could get, you know, absorbed into the space as well. So there would be kind of this, um, it, I mean, match is a pretty basic word, but yeah, it would fit the space properly. Um, and then just kind of bringing in the color, um, textural form, uh, which is something that I kind of already do in my work. A lot of my work is, super colorful and pretty abstract and, and, and very textural and somewhat three-dimensional. So those were already um, elements that I work with that I'm super familiar with. So what was I going to represent with those same elements that I use already? Um, and it was really just distilling, you know, what, what features did I want, which were the seasons and the elements and our um, chromosomes and kind of this unification heart. That that is amazing. I'm I am curious. I remember talking to you along the way, right? And and uh, you were talking about you know having a vision for it and how that that vision by hiring to be in collaboration with with architects, right? Yeah. With people building engineers, yeah. with people building this impermanent structure. How we had to how it had to change. And I, I was struck and I knew I wanted to ask you about this when you said it, how you said my vision had to change mm -hmm. and it became better. Yeah. And I'm just curious as to like what that collaborative process is like, because people sometimes think of art or many forms of art as such a, such a personal expression. Right. And this is obviously more than that. Yeah. Um, this was definitely... You know, the largest thing of, to scale, but then also it it was some the first project really where I had to do it in collaboration with others. Um, and kind of the whole, you know, the most of the nine months, there was a general idea of where the placement would be. Um, 
and we, you know, on site, we got the whole, the whole piece up where the placement would be. Um, but then there were, there was, you know, the architect and there was also another artist that did the lanterns, um, Matt, Matt Olson. And we had never talked before being on site together. Um, wow. he didn't really have an understanding of what I was doing. There was, there was a little miscommunication there. Um, <laughs> but then ultimately when he saw my pieces up, we ended up talking and we spent kind of a night and actually the next morning discussing it. And what was really great about it was that he, you know, he was super respectful and totally collaborative with me, but he explained um, him and some of the builders as well, some of the build crew, and kind of explaining these lines of flow and the lines of sight for the space and different points where people would enter the space, different, you know, perspectives people would see. And, you know, they were folks that had experience working in such a large space, in such a, you know, a similar type of project um, where you're looking at kind of this space in a much more holistic manner. Um, and those were things that just I never had to think about before because I've never really done work like this. I mean, most of the work I do is a lot smaller, can fit on the wall in your house um, or in an office or in a lobby or something like that. Um, so in creating the pieces, my experience was limited and I did not think about um, the way people walk through a space or, you know, different lines of sight from inside or outside the temple, things like that. And um, in talking to them, I totally understood exactly because it was, I mean, it was, it was a total education for me. I mean, this was like, talk about on the job training. I mean, this was something that I could not be lucky enough to get in another situation. Right. So in, in working with them and it was about another entire day to figure out a plan. And then, um, the crew was awesome and helping move the pieces. And that was kind of an adventure in itself. You're moving these, you know, 19, 20 foot large paintings (laughs) at each end of the temple. Um, definitely like a very, primo only at Burning Man moment. Um, (laughs) But yeah, once they were moved, it was so much better. Um, And it was also safer, um, you know, just considering there's these 300 pound wooden objects overhead. So the place, the final placement was just safer. It was just better, like placed into the structure itself. The, the lines of sights were preserved. Um, and, you know, that was only possible because there was expertise far beyond my own. Right. That we were able to come together and work through, like, taking everyone's vision, finding the best way to come together that also included, you know, how to do a proper install and, and how to incorporate the different elements from, you know, the, the architect's vision, the lantern artist's vision, my vision, incorporating, you know, how the build crew would see a proper installation. Um, yeah, I mean, I was definitely an example of, you know, greater together. Um, I had a vision that I thought was totally good and, it looked good. It did look good in the first place it was put, but it was even better when you add the expertise of all these other brilliant people. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And I think there's just so much, so much to learn there. There's so much to learn there um, about co-creating things, about bringing our best and allowing people to bring their best. That's why I wanted to talk about it. I want to get a little bit more into your personal story, but um, I don't want to move from this particular art piece without naming for people that might not know about Burning Man that that this, this incredible big art piece, perhaps maybe your biggest commission to date, um, was burnt 
in the fire at the temple. And, you know, that's a, that is huge. And that is a spiritual, a, a moment of like spiritual potency in and of itself to intentionally be, burn uh, what might be your, one of your more significant creations. I, I would love for our listeners to hear about that. What, what is that like for you? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> burning the pieces was also a decision that was not the original decision. Um, there, there was this initial plan that um, they would be taken down. Um, but then once the pieces were up and they were just so specific to the context of that place and time, um, it would almost feel, it, you know, it felt like it would be kind of wrong to take them down. And then if they were ever anywhere else, they would forever be out of place, right? Um, in addition, the logistics of taking them down and shipping them back were an entirely, you know, that was a whole nother thing that would be a lot. But um, yeah, I, I did think I'd I was going to feel a little bit more grief and lost around it, but part of the whole cycle, I mean, especially at Burning Man, I mean, the whole thing about burning things, um, is that that was part of the cycle, that you have this creative process. The the entire time to get the piece up there, I mean, you're going through the full range of human emotion in that, well, in the nine months for me, right? Um, and it was almost incomplete until it burned. Like the burning was part of it. Um, and thinking in what can come out of that sort of, you know, now that there's nothing there, I mean, if the temple from 2018 did not burn and everything inside it, then the temple this year would not be. Right. Right. Um, and so now it's kind of creating, you know, in the destruction, there can be a new creation. Um, right. But yeah, the feeling of like once once I saw the pieces up and it was so specific in context to th- there, um, it, it felt like it would be wrong if it were to be put anywhere else. Like the process would be incomplete because the process, the, the burning of it was part of the process. Yeah, that's... Uh... I find that even more amazing that 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 you had a plan and you had the option of salvaging them, but that in context you came to this understanding. I uh, I, I am really moved by that, and I, I just think it's a very very powerful stance to take when we're committed to transformation, like we are. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a little bit more about you, and I have I have some questions based on things I already know about you, but I, I do feel compelled to name. For our listeners that, you know, to give credit where credit is due in terms of Burning Man, uh, you know, I'm part of a camp, Kaviva camp, mm-hmm. that that staged an action on the Playa Burning Man this year because, uh, you know, there's a very, it, one of the principles is radical inclusion and uh, there's like no people of mm-hmm. color there, very little, you know, and uh, and that's still true. And I think we're right to keep pushing, but also to give credit to to whatever form allows a, a young woman of color like you, young queer woman of color, to to have to have this this offering, to make this offering from from your from your embodied experience. So I just wanted to to pause and and credit. You know, sometimes we just focus on what's not working. Right. And I and I think that's it's very beautiful that that happened. And I just wanted right. to name it. Yeah. No. I um. You know, in talking to Jordy when he, you know, first approached me about this, uh, Jordy the architect, like that was, that that wasn't you know glossed over. That was acknowledged for sure. Um, for which I'm very grateful. Right, this is an opportunity, kind of a very unique, you know, privilege that I've had. Um, but yeah, that that's definitely something that I've thought about through the entire process, and to be able to be that was pretty amazing for sure definitely yeah thank, thank you thank you for holding it one of the things that i'm curious about um is uh this uh, synesthesia mm-hmm. <laughs> that 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 is a part of your consciousness it's a part of how you experience the world and uh mm-hmm. i've been knowing about synesthesia for a long time and 
you know, I've experienced some version of it when working with with some sacred medicines, mm-hmm. but for it to be like an, an attribute of your perspective, uh, it's so absolutely fascinating. So if you could take a moment to, because I'm, I'm sure it influences your uh-huh. art and your perspective, yeah. right? And so I'd love to, he- to have your, our listeners kind of hear from you what that is and, and how you experience it. Yeah, so synesthesia, there's a few different ways that it that it is experienced, but it's essentially kind of like a crossing between your sensory reception and experience. So for me, um, audio visual or audio kind of sound sensory input can is experienced visually. Um, color, texture, shape, form, those are the sorts of kind of visual experiences that I get when I hear things. Um, so I listen to music or certain sounds, tones, those have different colors. Those can literally just create images for me. Um, and this was something that I didn't actually know it was a thing until like my late twenties. I've, you know, I've been painting doing art just since a kid probably started a little bit more seriously in high school. And I would straight up just paint two certain songs. I would put them on repeat and I was essentially just painting the song that I heard, but I didn't know. Wow. I didn't really know that there was a word for that or that it was different from other people. Um, I mean, there's times that I remember being younger and just asking friends of, you know, what color, something they wanted to listen to, or, oh, I want to hear something that's really yellow right now. And they would just kind of look at me like, what are you talking about? And I <laughs> didn't realize that was weird. Um, but then when I when I learned that it was actually something, it was a conditioned thing that's been studied and known about, um, it was almost like knowing that gave me the permission to prioritize my art. Um, Cause it, you know, the, the art thing, while always an interest and a hobby was sort of something that was on the side. Um, that's a good hobby to have, but you should, I don't know, focus on more <laughs> different things or something like that. But in a way it really allowed me to kind of recognize like, wait a minute, this is kind of literally a language that I process information in. Like I process sound, my thoughts, my feelings visually. And I should allow myself to kind of like speak in a native language, really. Um, so learning that kind of gave me the, the, the personal mental freedom I needed and to, to kind of just step more into being an artist. Yeah. But I've heard of other crosses that sound interesting. Like, I really wonder people that have crosses with their taste buds. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I had, I had a friend who, who actually died tragically. Um, rest, in, rest in power, dear Jake Brewer. But um, he, he, he said that numbers had a, had a location in space. Mm. So he had a spatial perception of, of numbers, which was wild, you know? That's cool. Which has made him really good at numbers, actually, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so this, you know, I remember being with you uh, in this, uh, this retreat that we were both a part of. It, it was happening in Albuquerque. It was in New Mexico, but we were in Albuquerque at the time. And I saw you having a book. I'm pretty sure it was Michael Pollan's book, yeah. How to Change Your Mind. And we made eye contact and you're like, hey, I think we know each other. And you were like, yeah, psychonaut, yeah. you know? <laughs> and uh, it was an immediate connection for us. Um, and I want to I want to ask you about that part of your life. But in me, the first question I want to ask is, you know, so for me, um, that kind of uh, that kind of medicine work is a way in which I experience some form of synesthesia, right? And which kind of because mm-hmm. music can pick up a color or or, or just every, your senses become heightened, and, and and it gives you kind of a deep deep connection to yourself and, and to truth. And I'm wondering, um, 
What is that like for you already having synesthesia? You know what I mean? And it, 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 when you work with this sacred medicines, um, what can you tell me about your experience and, and why they're important for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually think that we all have the capacity for synesthesia, like regularly. Um, I think kind of society just really stamps it out of us pretty immediately. I mean, you know, well, you have a, a, a young kid, but if you're around some kids sometimes, they're just like, oh, you know, this kid has a cupcake. This cupcake tastes purple. And right. like, no, 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 that's that's nonsense. Or, oh, this flower smells like a square. And, you know, maybe actually this kid is just saying exactly what they're experiencing, but to adults that have been conditioned, it's, no, no, that, that cupcake's not a shape. And that, you know, the flower, the flower, you know, they, there's these correct associations we can make. Right. And we learned it pretty young. Um, so I think under um, certain experiences in different sorts of medicines and such, I mean, along with your ego, but those sorts of, um, you know, restrictions are removed or lessened in which case you could tap in a little bit more to what would you really feel associating these things um, where there's not, there's not like this social construct that, you know, there's these words that apply to foods and there's these words that apply to sound and these words that apply to color. Um, instead, it's sort of more of this like full integration of senses and experience. Um, and sometimes there are no words for it. Um, like a lot of times when I hear, if I hear something, it's not like I'm just totally hallucinating colors. Sometimes it's more just the feeling of the color. Like, you know, if, if, if that makes sense. Like I hear something and I'm feeling what the color of the sound is. Um, That's beautiful. And I mean, yeah. sometimes, yes, I do get... I do just see like different shapes and patterns and forms, but it can be a lot more subtle than that too. Um, right. And yeah, under certain experiences there, I mean, it can be overwhelming too, you know, um, where then you just want silence and darkness as well. Um, yeah. Have you ever been in a sensory deprivation tank? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've actually yeah, oh, I've been doing that for a while, and I'm doing it a little bit more regularly now, um, which okay. is really nice. And, yeah, for, for me, I feel sometimes my brain is maybe overactive. So that is right. um, definitely yeah. something I like a lot. I think you do that regularly, too. Yeah, I got to clean up the one I have in the basement. Mm -hmm. It's been a while. So that's a big next step for me. Um, so staying on the topic of, of the sacred medicines, but talking a little bit about other parts of our life. So I have, um, I have struggled with addiction in my life and, and it's been, you know, it's been kind of, it's like the curse that became a blessing, right? Because uh -huh. paying attention to it becomes such an important part of staying on the path is a beautiful humbling for me. I, uh, the way I've moved into it is by participating in in, in a twelve step program. It's been mm -hmm. it's been really life changing, and I bring it up because I was at the temple of Burning Man with a dear friend that also knows you and knows some of your story. And uh, you know, we were having one of those Burning Man moments of grace and awe. And um, as we contemplated your art, we we were saying prayers for you and kind of feeling your energy. Mm. And um, what our friend said was, she said. You know, I feel like like this kind of beauty can sometimes only come out of that that kind of experience that that that, that Jay has had that experience of of knowing what it's like to be to be bound in that way. And I'm wondering, first of all, if that's true for you, and and if you can tell us about the connection between uh, addiction and, and sacred medicine, because for me, it has been super super important in my mm -hmm. own healing. Um. I definitely think there's different, obviously there's different things, right? Um, and yeah, I think, you know, I've had 
issues with addiction previously. Um, I think also with kind of, you know, emotional trauma and abuse as well. Kind of all those things that constrict you and kind of tie you down and, you know, they that don't allow you to exist as you are or, or grow as you are. Um, now being able to not have those restrictions, there's sort of kind of this extra emphasis of personal freedom that I experience. But it does mm. kind of keep me reminded of not being in control of my own behavior or what I think I'm capable of or literally putting things stopping me from acting as I want to do. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's almost like now that now I just fully want to express who I am because those, those restrictions have been removed. Um, and then using different sorts of medicines that, that allows kind of this extra exploration of myself or, you know, um, consciousness. And it's done in a way that, you know, I'm not, there's not any sort of physical dependency that's chaining me to this thing that I need. Um, it's very conscious, deliberate choices um, and experiences that I'm undertaking versus almost just a reactionary survival instinct of needing, needing, consuming, right. um, which are two very different approaches to something um, which yields, you know, very different results as well. Completely, completely. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really hard in a in a culture and even like a, a legal system that makes no mm-hmm. distinctions between one substance and another, right? Like there are substances that bound you, that bind mm-hmm. you, that enslave you, that uh, that make you a compulsive user. And there are substances that do the direct right. opposite. And, and we literally have a legal system that puts them all in the same mm-hmm. box. And it's a, it's an outrage. I mean, it, it, it is, it is, it's really indicative of a society that has, that has lost its, lost its way, right? A society that wants to control the consciousness of people and the development of people. Especially so considering the research around, you know, certain treatments that actually, yes, like literally there is research that shows how beneficial to people with addiction and PTSD and depression, some medicines are, you know, you know, very promising and have shown really, really beneficial results. And that is being ignored and um, withheld from the public. It's kind of a disservice. Right. I, I agree. I want to ask you a question in a slightly different direction, but for sake of our listeners so that we haven't been... Uh, it doesn't sound too cryptic here. So for I'll give you at least one example from my own life. I have worked with a medicine called uh-huh. Ibogaine. It's a medicine from Africa. And it's known as the best cure against addiction mm-hmm. known to man, you know? Um, it really set, creates an entirely dis- different set of conditions in your psyche and your body and and can help people that are addicted to mm-hmm. much more serious substances. I mean, my addictions were addictions, our addictions to to alcohol and to pop, but the people are using this to get through uh-huh. meth and to get through heroin, right? And so literally this 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 drug scourge that is destroying our country, we have medicine right. that ancestral that will help us get better and, and we won't turn towards that it it feels it feels really, really wrong. Um, but Jay I wanted to to ask you when when you speak of your art, when you speak of your freedom, when you speak of both trauma and addiction and things that you have worked through, I I feel like I am before somebody that is really done good healing work, good 
good liber- liberatory work, right? That you are, and of course, all of us have plenty mm-hmm. of work to do, but there's a way in which you walk in the world like somebody that has a very real taste of what freedom is. And uh, and so I want to acknowledge that. And I want to, I'm kind of working my way towards the question here because part of what I'm doing with, with, the, with the podcast is be more intentional about interviewing across mm-hmm. generations, right? I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. I place you in the millennial yep. cohort, right? And and I, I notice, of course, as generations all do, some, some of the differences, right? The, gener- the generational differences, the things that are the, the points of clash and the points uh-huh. of excitement across generations. Oh my God, I can't believe they're doing that. That's amazing. Or, oh my God, what the <laughs> heck are they doing? Um, and and so one of the things that I often kind of grapple with is uh, what I sometimes perceive as a sensitivity that can really approach fragility and even a tendency to center to center trauma or center victimhood in a way that that can be less than helpful because it makes it kind of such a central part of, of, of the mm-hmm. identity, right? As opposed to something you want to mm-hmm. work through. And I'm just curious as to, you know, as part of your generational cohort, you know, how do you relate to that uh, as somebody that, that has so evidently worked through uh, mm-hmm. so much of that? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely understand what you're saying. There, There's definitely a conversation now to the... Like, where, where is this kind of sensible line, you know? Like, I can see wrong in a lot of things. Um, but then it's sort of kind of back to what I was saying in terms of the anger. Was when I was operating from this place of anger, all of my emotions of being hurt or ignored or minimized, all of that was just turning into anger. And then ultimately, that just made me the exact problem that I saw in the world. And when I was angry, I was focusing on things that would make me angry, which would make me more angry. Um, And not to say that things should just be passed over and ignored. There's right. Anger is good. It is a valid human emotion. But if that is kind of the lead, sort of like if, you know, there's certain traumas that I've experienced certain challenges I've experienced and some people that is, that is their identity. They associate with that or they need the trauma in their life because, you know, unfortunately that's what they're comfortable with. And I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors here, right? There's people that aren't getting the treatment to process and heal from their trauma. So that's all that they might be able to sit with and function with, you know, our mental health care system is pretty atrocious. So there's that as well. But yeah, right. I mean, I, I can recognize that certain things of my life have not been challenging. I mean, I've had a, a relatively supportive family that definitely, you know, they've provided for me. I've, I've grown up really in a middle-class moving upward um, family, like, my family is very supportive of me financially. Um, they, you know, I, I didn't have to amass a lot of student debt or anything like that. Um, and I'm also, you know, Chinese. There's a bit of a racial privilege there as well. Um, so there's certain things that I, I don't fully understand that other people have to go through. Um, but in terms of things that I've experienced myself, like, you know, domestic violence and substance abuse and addiction, um, allowing that to become your identity, for me, being the focus of it, just continues that trauma. Because it's still restricting you. It's still keeping you in a place of pain and anger, Um it, it's still chaining you to something. You might not be, you know, doing the substances. You might not be in that same relationship, but the processing to get out of that is what's going to set you free from the mental constraints of that experience. And that 
I mean, that's taken a long time for me. You know, it's definitely not easy and it's taken various forms of self-destructive behavior and healing behavior. Um, so it's been kind of a little, you know, it's been a ride. I mean, um, I can say a lot of that now is almost 10 years past. Um, so it's been about a 10 year journey to get to a place where now I feel like I can actually take lessons from those experiences and, and apply them now. I'm no longer just trying to not be hurt by those experiences anymore. I'm no longer just trying to not be restrained by those experiences more. Now, it's, I've definitely learned some very hard lessons. I've become more self-aware in some ways. Um, and now I can actually take those you know, good things that have ultimately resulted and apply those moving forward. What a great way to articulate it. Uh, I am no longer uh, trying not to be hurt, you know? Uh, that, that, that just sounds really appropriate, and I'm appreciating that uh, a lot. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really resonant. You know, one, one of the ways we talk about it is um, whatever the experience was, it had you, right? Now right. you have it, right? And that completely changes the relationship to it. Um, I wanted to to ask you one more kind of smaller question and, and then a couple of questions that I ask every guest. Uh, one of the coolest, you have, there's so many kind of cool things that which I could, our, our listeners could see you. You're, you kind of have this cool <laughs> swag, right? Uh, I, I appreciate that about you. And I really like the, the body art. I really like, especially these mm -hmm. two tattoos that you have. I think one is in your yeah. arm, one is on your leg. And there are sound waves, and maybe we can uh, maybe we can even include them in the mm -hmm. show notes so people can see them along with, with your art. Um, and one of them is like what your mother says to you, the sound waves of what your mother says to you. The other one of, the, yeah. of what your dad says to you. Can you tell us what those are? And I yeah, just um, my left and how you come up. My left with forearm you. has um, the sound wave of my mother saying "I love you." And then my right calf oh, has the sound wave of my father saying, be careful, um, which is ultimately my dad's way of saying, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, I have this, this conversation with my parents with me all the time. I mean, the kind of ironic thing is that my parents absolutely do not like tattoos, but in me being the youngest child and kind of a little punk sometimes... I had to just kind of stick one thing there where, well, you can't really not like these tattoos too much, you know, because it's you too. But um, yeah, the look on their faces when I told them what they mean, it was kind of just this, you, you little, <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> that's, uh, that's something I, I regret we didn't get get into though I'm really happy with how we had the conversation as you know um, my son is mm -hmm. is half Chinese his his mother's Chinese and uh, and so I imagine just like your creative life force the way mm -hmm. you express right um, the even imagine being a queer woman I imagine all of, none of those things probably came easy into a traditional uh, mm -hmm. Chinese immigrant family uh, And and I'm you know I wonder if you could say a word or two about about that about coming from how how have you been welcomed in your household with all this this forms of self expression? It's definitely been um, a roller coaster. I'll say that for sure, especially considering some of the you know destructive behaviors I had, especially when I was younger. Um, I will say that I'm the youngest of three, and you know my two. Older sisters are maybe a little bit more what my the traditional Chinese parents would uh, imagine their kids to be. Um, but it's been kind of a roller coaster in a way that there were things that my parents dealt with that they never even considered having to deal with. Um, things like addiction or um, things like that. Kind of my sort of rejection of this capitalistic... Um, framework of the world too. Um, it's definitely gotten better as I've gotten older though, and they can understand, you know, definitely 
I've had conversations with my mother as an adult about growing up queer in a small town in New England, which was not positive for me. And, you know, I think that helped her understand a little bit about me as well. Um, And I can understand, and I've learned a little bit more, you know, about their perspective and what they've had to go through coming here from China, facing things decades ago that, you know, while there's still a lot of issues in society, it's it's definitely a lot better now um, than it was when they first arrived here. As I've got older, my parents, they've seen a lot more that although different maybe in the way that I live my life, um, they can tell that, you know, now I'm not, you know, destitute. I'm not totally failing in society, but um, they can also see that I'm very happy. Um, my self-expression and my lifestyle, I live a pretty fulfilling, happy life. Um, and that I act from a good place, right? I'm not trying to harm others and I'm not trying to, you know, destroy the planet. Like I'm, I'm trying to act in an ethical, moral, um, you know, in way that, with behaviors towards other people that I, you know, I try to act with care and intention. Um, so while, you know, I might not have, you know, success and prestige in more traditional ways, um, I think they can definitely see that, you know, I'd like to, them, I'd like to think that they see that I am a good person trying to be the best human I can be. And there's certain gifts, you know, that I have, um, you know, creatively and artistically, like I consider that these are gifts that I have that I should pursue. Beautiful, beautiful. No, it's uh, I think these are parts of the immigrant story that that people looking from the outside can often miss. So thank you for sharing. I'm, I'm moving towards a close here, but you know, there's a couple of questions I I ask my guests and uh, one of them is a commitment that I have made to myself as uh, as a man as a man um, that that is part of the patriarchy a man that's trying to become better to help other men become better a man living in a post me too world and and so the question I ask of powerful women such as yourself when I have the opportunity to be in this in these deep conversations is you know what advice do you have for men? What do you think men should do if they want to, men who want to be better, men who want to show up better? And now that uh, the ugliness of our patriarchy is, is so evidently exposed. I think listening is probably one of the best things that really anyone, but definitely men can do. Um, there is, kind of this established just norm. Um, men can speak a lot, um, speak over women. And then there's almost this other accepted norm. There's this other accepted norm that when women speak, and it can kind of be on anything, even when we speak about ourselves, <laughs> that is, it's okay to be questioned. Um, and not to say that men shouldn't speak at all and that, you know, don't question anything, but there's a way that it's like, I, you know, women can speak on things that only women know about. And yet still expert, the, the, you know, leading experts, a man, the, the medical expert is a man. Um, politicians that can question these things are men. Um, and then even just, you know, in conversations, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen conversations and been in conversations with definitely, you know, men that I would say they're, they, they try to be conscious and they are well-meaning, um, but there's still like a doubt about what we're saying, about what someone was saying. Um, did she really experience that or does she really know what he meant or, um, you know, is that, you know, and there's even like data about it. I mean, like male doctors, women don't get 
heard, you know, treated for pain the way that men do and things like that. You know, like it really just comes down to like letting women speak and actually listening to them um, and not listening to them so that you can critique or challenge or voice your opposition or other opinion, but really just hearing what they're saying. Um, I mean, sadly, it's like, listen to a woman like you listen to another man is really, um, unfortunately, kind of sometimes all we need. But I mean, we need a lot more than that. Okay, all we need. (laughs) It's really, no, no, no. I I asked, it's very, very poignant and, and powerful. It's landing for me as, that's deeply, deeply true. And uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that generosity. It makes perfect sense to me. The the last one then is I, I like to invite my guests to do a little time traveling. And so basically the, the invitation is for you to take a leap forward, you know, to 20 years from now. That's how we used to measure a generation. And if you can imagine... Uh, and you don't have to tell us what it is, right? But you can imagine what your life is like, right? Like your goals are, many of your goals are accomplished, both your internal growth, personal growth goals, as well as your goals in the world, like things that you're working on have been manifested. And and of course there has been loss. And of course there's things that you're still working on. But overall it's like a net positive leap into the future, right? And 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 so the invitation is give you give you a second there to to consider what that looks like, because basically this time travel is to go into the future and garner some wisdom, right? And and see if that that person can come back to us here for a couple of minutes from the future and and tell us, you know, what advice do you have for yourself, and what advice do you have for us um, with that perspective? What would you say to us? What would you say to yourself? I think the 20 years forward is uh, 2039. Really being present. um, Acting true and for the present. Mm -hmm. True to yourself. Yes. Ultimately, I think you're really only answerable to yourself. That's right. Um, and we'd have no idea when it ends for us. Right. Um, yeah, there's it's the beautiful. unknown and, and impermanence of things. So just, yeah. yeah. Time, timeless wisdom. <laughs> timeless wisdom. I, I appreciate it. Thank you, Jerry. Well, it's been a real joy uh, to connect with you. Yeah, um, definitely. I, Enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, and for, for making your art and for following your calling with so much courage and and beauty and boldness and enthusiasm. Um, keep keep sharing what you're here to bring because it, it makes the world better and it makes the the life of those around you better. I, I really experience it as such. Thank yeah. you so, so thank much. Thank you so much, Gibran. Yeah, I really appreciate it.